Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, we find these words. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we had gathered, And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, and had broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asus, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asus, We took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the next day we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to begin my message this morning with a confession. You ready for this? Isn't that that a nice place for a preacher to start is by confessing? I confess that I haven't cleaned my glasses in like a week. That's my first confession. I confess disconnectedness. So I was scheduled to preach next week on verses 17 through the end of the chapter. And when I had the opportunity to speak, preach this week, I started studying these first 16 verses, and for the first several days of my study, I was absolutely disconnected from it. So I did what I would counsel people to do. Was there sin happening? Was it too much focus on things going on around me? What was going on? Why was there this disconnectedness? And it didn't go away. And so one of the things I've learned in my years is that if, if God doesn't take it away, there's got to be a purpose for it being here. And I said, well, 
how many people, when they read the scriptures, how many people, when they come and they listen to a sermon or they're talking at a small group about the scriptures, feel the same way, feel disconnected? And maybe that's part of what I'm supposed to be working through as part of my sermon is just to figure out, all right, I'm disconnected. How do we blaze a trail to connectedness? And as I purposed in that, all of a sudden the Lord was just gracious. He was gracious and he just started to open the doors of just connectedness to the passage. And I just started reading through the passage and thinking about it for the balance of the week. So there's my confession. As we progress through the book of Acts, standing in awe of the spread of the kingdom. I hope you're reading the book of Acts and you're just like, wow! And we're praying for here, Warrenville and Wheaton and Naperville. Wow! That's what we're after. It's easy to see this. I, I, I preach through the book of Acts in, in Romeoville. It's easy to see this just simply as travel stories on repeat. So, so Paul goes here, he preaches, people respond, people hate him, people want him dead. On to the next town, start again. And when that happens, when that happens, we could start to see the scriptures as very disconnected. What, what do I have to do with that? Right? My problem is I can't get my Bluetooth to work and I'm reading something about a guy getting chased out of town by people who want to kill him because he's preaching Christ. What do I do with that? Then we're met with, with God's words through Paul to Timothy, which tell us that all, 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 once again, all Scripture is given to us by the inspiration or the breath of God. It's for our good. It's meant to do something. It's meant to do something in us. We're not supposed to just listen like I'm, like I'm listening or I'm not just supposed to read like I'm reading for a class to recite some facts so I get a grade. This word is given to us by God with an intention. And that intention is to transform us somehow. Oh, I'm just, I'm letting you in like how God is just walking me through this from disconnected to connected So how do we do that in a passage like today's? Okay, God, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking. I'm good. It's given by you. It's supposed to transform me. But what do I do? I got, I got just travel details. I got some young guy flying out a window, dead, and then being raised. What do I do with that? One of the ways that I... I this is just how I was thinking through it, and I had no intention of preaching it this way, but it was just basically for my edification as much as anything, was I, I started to see kind of two parallel tracks. So I'm thinking almost like train tracks, two, two parallel tracks, two parallel tracks. When I get crazy and adventurous enough, we're going to have slides. I totally choked this week. We're going to have slides just to help you with that image. And track number one, track number one, is very simply to stand amazed at what's going on in the text. As God's gospel, the message of rescue found in Christ spreads through the preaching of Christ crucified. 
to, to stand in awe of the fact that this gospel is transforming lives and cultures region by region, oftentimes through God's miraculous intervention. I shouldn't even say that. As we were talking about before our Sunday school class, there is no greater miracle than when God changes a sinner's nature. That's miraculous. I could show you some old video of me before I was born again if you need to know how miraculous. Track number two, so track one is, wow! Oh, there's that light again. There we Track number one is, wow, look at what's going on. Track number two is kind of an applicational track where we, the reader, look within the story and try to figure out how do we, how do we resonate, how do we connect with this story, how do we do it? Oftentimes, there is someone or something who is worthy of our imitation in the text. Someone who is worthy of our imitation as we walk with Christ. This is a crucial thing, a crucial skill to develop to bring the scriptures home to us, to find daily applicability in events that happened 2,000 years ago. So as far as track two in our passage today, we see someone worthy of imitation. And it's not Eutychus, so keep your eyes open. Rather, it's the Apostle Paul. And I know know an objection can quickly come. Well, that's Paul, man. He's a super apostle. I can't imitate him. Well, Paul begs to differ. If you'd ever study through his letter to the Corinthians, there's a couple times where he says things like this. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Or later on, that's chapter 4, later on in chapter 11, he says... Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So the Spirit inspires Paul to write to his audience and say, imitate me. So one of the things we want to do is we're coming to this passage. We want to sit there and we go, yeah, look at this. Look at the glory. There's, there's travel. There's persecution. There's raising this young guy. There's all sorts of stuff going on. But we also want to say, what is it about Paul in this passage, that we want to imitate. Those are our two tracks, two parallel tracks, mission and model. If you have a bulletin, you will see that there's a very simple outline. And each one of those tracks is revealed at each point. Point number one is Greece and encouragement and disciples. Verses 1 through 6, point number 2, 7 through 12 is Eutychus and power and purpose. And point number 3 is toward Jerusalem, honoring the foundations 13 through 16. So the first part of our chapter, you see the first words in this chapter are after the uproar ceased. So this picks up the story after the riot at Ephesus had died down. Paul 
calls for his disciples, he says goodbye, and he departs for Macedonia. But note what Paul does here before he leaves. Note what he does, what he does here before he leaves. He encourages the disciples. He encouraged them, and then he leaves. And as, through he, go, as he goes through the regions of Macedonia, what does the text say that he does to those disciples in those regions? He encourages them. He encourages them. Paul knew, Paul knew, Paul knew that those who had repented and believed the gospel needed to be encouraged. They needed to be encouraged as they began living as aliens, as pilgrims, as strangers in this world. These were blood-bought believers in Christ and they needed encouragement. Next week to the Ephesian elders, Paul's going to say, these blood-bought Christians need the protection of elders from the dangers that are out there. So quickly now we jump to track two, seeking for ways that we can imitate Paul. Seeking for ways we can imitate Paul. One way we can imitate Paul is to be an encourager. For Paul, he went into these regions preaching the gospel. People believed and followed Jesus. And now he had just left this dangerous riot scene in Ephesus. And where is his focus? Where is his focus? Others. Others. And we know that the road in following Christ is often a hard road. These Christ followers needed encouragement as they walked the hard road. These followers of Christ needed encouragement as they followed the hard road. Has any of that changed today? I would argue no. Walking through this fallen world, identifying ourselves as Christ's people, dealing with all the hardships that come, people need encouragement. We are surrounded by a culture that majors on critique, tearing down, sniping at people. What if we were a people that so loved Christ and loved others, that we were known as being a people that loved to encourage one another. What if we as Christ's people were known by our tireless desire to encourage one another? What if for every word of critique we offered others, we offered ten words of encouragement? What if people could say of us, boy, I always come away from talking with that person encouraged. Encouraged. Do you think that would make a difference in people's lives? Do you think that would strengthen people as they seek to follow Jesus in this tiring, tough world? I think it would. And I think it would wonderfully imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Back to track one. So Paul travels through Macedonia. Somewhere along the way, he returned or he meets with Titus. He was seeking to meet with Titus because Titus had gone to Corinth and delivered Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 
Anybody here read the first letter of the Corinthians? That would be a hard one to get, wouldn't it? There's a lot of really, really corrective stuff in that letter. Paul's waiting to hear back and see how it went. See if Titus still has all his limbs, maybe. After meeting with Titus and getting news, seemingly that the, new, the letter had been received and had its desired effect, Paul arrives in Greece, seemingly coming to Corinth, and he spends three months there. And we can learn, if you want to learn a lot about that, that portion, what goes on in those months, this afternoon is part of your afternoon study, the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians do a wonderful job of expressing what happens there. And as he's about to sail out of town, he hears that the Jews have made a plot against him. Seems like it follows him everywhere. So Paul decides to leave and backtrack. So now he's going to take the long road home, the long way home, to quote the, the theologian super tramp. So Paul decides to leave and backtrack. And Paul's desire is to get back to Jerusalem with this offering he had collected. Very important If you were to look back in chapter 19, verse 21, Paul's travel itinerary is there. Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. As he starts his journey, as he starts his journey, verse 4, look at verse 4 in chapter 20, verse 4 lists all these men who were part of the travel companionship. These were men from churches in regions that Paul had established churches and ministered to. And now they were part of his traveling caravan as he sought to make it back to Jerusalem to deliver that offering. These men would join the kingdom mission in a very tangible and profound Way. Back to track two now. The practical. The practical. Here we find another point worthy of imitation. Paul's focus on ministering with the intent of raising up disciples. Disciples who would carry the baton. I'm thinking, I'm just thinking, and that's dangerous what I'm thinking. I'm up here and Paul ruples up here and we're talking about children's church and we're talking about ministering. If we can see, if we can see the ministry to our children, I mean, it's happening, it's not, ground, it's not zero, but if we could see the ministry to our children as us, as us discipling them to prepare them, And it might be 25, 30 years from now, but to take the baton from us as we kind of go, as perhaps our our life is ending and that next generation steps up and takes the baton and ministers. Paul was a disciple maker. Paul recognized that he was not going to be here forever, whether it was Timothy, Titus, or the list of these men, Paul was zealous about raising up men to serve the kingdom. He was a disciple maker. But he was a disciple maker that plugged people into kingdom mission. And I would argue, brothers and sisters, we have to be the same way, seeking to make disciples. Disciples who serve our Lord. Disciples who see their lives in terms of kingdom mission. 
That's one of the, that's one of discipleship 101. Discipleship 101 is to take people and, and, and love them, but also teach them, you know what? Kingdom mission isn't necessarily about selling your house, selling your, all your belongings, and going to, to Nigeria or Kenya or wherever the hard place is. You're on mission right where you're at. You are. You are God's representative right in the life where you are today. Mothers and fathers, your primary mission field is your family, your home. People who work, your mission field is your workplace. You're God's representative there. Students, students, your mission field is your school. Teachers and student, other students. So part of discipling is to help people see that the mission is everywhere. And how do we carry out that mission? How do we empower and encourage people to carry out that mission? This is how we must view the younger folks and children in our church. They will be leaders in our church someday. Paul went through and these people, these people who, are, who are joining him in taking this journey to deliver this, this, this offering. You wonder at one point, at, at one point, chances are Paul met them and they were in unbelief. And then God awakens them to the gospel. And then God, God allows Paul to establish churches and through those churches they are built up and raised up and nourished and strengthened in the faith. And then what happens? They join the mission. Paul knew he wasn't going to be there forever. Do we have someone that we are pouring into in such a manner? Or are we opening ourselves up to be poured into in such a manner? Thankful for, for Jeff this morning who who gave me the, the Byron and Mert Tabbit um, illustration. That's so helpful. This is how it's got to be. We, we, we should be in relationship with folks where they're, they're upholding us and discipling us while we at the same time are upholding and discipling others. That is the Christian life. That is the Christian life. Do we see our lives as kingdom mission? You're on a mission for God's glory, and Paul's mission in part was to make disciples of King Jesus. May we imitate Paul in being an encourager and a disciple maker. Back to track one. This section ends by telling us that this group went ahead to Troas and Paul and his immediate group, which Luke included, sailed, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and arrived at Troas. And so now we move to the second part of our outline, which is Eutychus, the power and the purpose. The power and the purpose. On the first day of the week in Troas, the believers gather to break bread. This is one of the first mentions of Christians meeting on the first day of the week. Oftentimes in the evening, because the people had to work during the day. And the meeting is centered on a meal, which is why I'm glad I converted to Christianity, and a meal and some teaching. And that teaching oftentimes, especially here, was in the form of discussion back and forth. Paul is there, and he plans on leaving the next day, and he talks, and he talks. Then you know what he does? He talks some more. 
You think, I'm long-winded. Paul's talking. But we also assume that he's dialoguing with the folks for their good. First mention says, until midnight. And then Luke mentions that there are many lamps present. They needed to give light in the evening hours and to be burning oil. So now you got the, you got the, the, the late night. You got this kid sitting in the window. Well, a young man, he could have worked all day. Who knows? So we've got a little oxygen deprivation and we've got a little late evening and all the perfect ingredients are there for old Eutychus to take one off the high board. So this poor fella is on the window ledge, three levels up, and boom, he falls out. And it says they take him up dead. Some folks just, he wasn't dead. He was, now Luke's pretty precise. They, 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 they take him up dead. But here comes Paul. What's fascinating, we don't have a lot of data on Eutychus. We don't have a lot of data on Eutychus. So it's important, he's important, but he's not the main portion. So here comes Paul, just like Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings, just like Jesus, just like Peter in Acts chapter 9. Peter says, don't freak, his life's in him. And Paul is used by God to give Eutychus life again. Then what does Paul do? Accompany him to the hospital? Now Paul then goes back upstairs they eat, and they talk until dawn. So I don't want anyone to get restless as the clock strikes noon here, okay? Paul's talking until dawn. Why? Because he knew that's what the people needed. He knew that's what the people needed. Whatever was going on in there, some say it was talk about resurrection, and then the Eutychus gave an object. That's going beyond what the text says. But whatever happened in that room was needful for those people who were with Paul. They needed encouragement. They needed fellowship. They needed instruction. Over to track two, what can we possibly learn from this? Two things, I would argue. First, note how kingdom and people-focused Paul was. He had a purpose. He knew what his purpose was. Did he have travel plans? Well, yeah. Could he have used a good night's sleep before departing? Yeah. Think he was worn out? Absolutely. But he knew his purpose. Paul's purpose was to make Christ known. Paul's purpose was to deepen the faith and encourage those who knew Christ. Paul's purpose was to instruct the people of God that, that God had sovereignly put before him. Paul loved the people he was with. He laid aside his personal comfort and did what was best for the people at Troas, conversed with them all night to comfort them, to strengthen them. He didn't necessarily count the cost to himself. Is it possible that our kingdom impact sometimes is lessened because our first thought is the cost to ourselves? I know for me, the answer is yes. What if we were a people known for doing whatever the situation or whatever the person needed, flinging aside the cost to ourselves? What would that look like? 
I would say that if we were a rabid, not in a literal sense, a rabid bunch of Christ followers who did that, we would turn the world upside down. Second thing, and I'm going to be cautious here. This doesn't come naturally. Is the power on display in Paul's life? Is the power on display in Paul's life? So bear with me here. Can we expect to imitate Paul in raising the dead? That's an interesting question, ain't it? Let's see you show up. No, no, I could do a show of hands. That'd be fascinating, though, wouldn't it? I think that is a particular miracle given by God for a particular purpose in a particular place. But I think one thing we can take away, we can take away, is this. I think we can be assured that God will grant us power to accomplish whatever he wants in whatever situation he puts before us. I've been praying, I've been praying for this body to be known for the power that resides in this body. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a powerless, hopeless, dour, Christian. That's not the abundant life that Christ came to purchase for us. power that is supernatural in origin. And what is the key to a life that has that power? So what is the key? I think if you were to look ahead to next week's passage, I'm not going to speak a lot on it because uh, this will be a part of next week's passage, but if you look at verse 24, here's Paul's posture. Here's Paul's posture that, although we know that the raising Eutychus was a special gift of God for the moment, but Paul's entire life is marked by a power. What is the key to that power? That's what I want to know because I I want that. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. Oh, that's all he wants, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See what Paul says? Paul says, All I... All I want to do is carry out my mission and be faithful and, and just go to my reward. And as we, as we talked about in first hour in our ABF, if we believe that and if we believe Jesus defeated death and therefore we have no fear of death, and if we have no fear of death, the writer of Hebrews says we're not enslaved to that fear of death anymore. If we, if we live fear of death free, that totally affects how we live. That's what Paul did. And because of that, there was a power that rested upon Paul. A supernatural power. The key to power in our lives, brothers and sisters, is an absolute yieldedness. That's a long word. My spell checker says it's wrong. I don't care. A yieldedness to God. A willing to count our lives cheap compared to our devotion to the Lord because we love him. And he loved us enough to come and live and die for us. What does he want in return? All of us. All of us. It's all he wants. And when we yield ourselves to him in that way, there is an incredible power that rests upon us and on our lives. 
a willingness to die to our preferences, a willingness to die to our plans, our willingness to die to our need for sleep and talk with people, bear with people, teach with people, sit outside a hospital and pray with people at 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever it takes, as long as it takes, for the good. Paul's life of being yielded to the Lord led to a life full of great power. Was there trouble? Was there hardships? Well, yeah. doesn't go away. But there's a power that carries through. In Philippians, he would call it resurrection power. So Paul's constant desire to encourage is worthy of imitation. Paul's eye to raise up and entrust the mission to disciples is worthy of imitation. Paul's kingdom and other-mindedness is worthy of imitation. Paul's lessening of himself and yielding himself to God entirely is worthy of imitation. And what happens in a life like that? Power. A power, brothers and sisters, that turns the world upside down. This brings us to our final point. Toward Jerusalem and honoring the foundations, 13 through 16. So Paul doesn't get on the boat. Rather, he walks 20 miles or so to Asus and there he gets on the boat. They sail into different cities. They point out the stops and verse 16 says they sail past Ephesus. It's interesting because next week we'll hear that from Miletus he sends for the elders of the church of Ephesus. Maybe it wasn't safe for him to return. Maybe he knew that going there would definitely cost him arriving in Jerusalem on time. We don't necessarily know. But what we do know is that Paul wants to get back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Why? Why? I mean, like, Paul's a Christian now. What's with all this Jewish stuff? Why does he need to participate in these Jewish feasts? Or why does he maybe not need, but why does he desire to? The answer is this. The answer is this. Paul was a true Jew. Paul was a member of true Israel. He was able to see all of the feasts, all of the law, all of the prophets in all of their fullness because they all pointed to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who Paul believed in. And now he could look back and see how all of that, Pentecost and, and the Holy Days weren't necessarily days of anticipation anymore. Paul could go back and totally celebrate. Yeah, 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 the one that's pointed to, he came, he came. Let me tell you about him. He came. That's true celebration. That's true celebration. He was now able to understand and truly celebrate. He wanted to go back to join with his believing fellow Jews to celebrate. And he wanted to implore the unbelieving fellow Jews about the fact that Jesus 
is the Christ. Track two, we say, is there anything there worthy of imitation? Is there anything in that worthy of imitation? And I'm not one to suggest that Gentiles should go back and celebrate the Jewish calendar. But are there foundational moments in the life of Christ's church that we should honor? Are there moments in the life of Christ's church that are foundational to being where we're at today and how we practice the faith that we should honor? Well, if you celebrate Christian, Christian, Christmas and Easter, you already do that to some degree. Or what about when we study an early creed like we confess the Apostles' Creed earlier, truths that are brought out and rooted in Scripture. What about if we study a creed that brings clarity to complicated theology? What about when we acknowledge this day not as Halloween, but as Reformation Sunday? Why? Not because we're making an idol of the Reformation. We need to be people because we have the Word of God who need to be continually reforming according to the Word of God. But that said, this was a time where God stepped in and corrected the course of church history, bringing back the purity of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the broader Christendom reaffirming the word of God as the sole source of authority. Is it wrong to honor those foundations? We are here in part because we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and have established those foundations. So I'd say no. Much better than a Casper the Ghost uniform or costume is a recognition of what God has done in the building of his son's church. Next week, God allowing, we will pick up our story in Miletus where Paul calls for the Ephesian elders to meet and we get to hear more of Paul's heart and we also get to hear Paul's charge which not only resonates to the elders from Ephesus but also resonate to the elders here and the elders of churches everywhere and men who are praying and considering pursuing the office of eldership. But as we leave this text, let's ask the Lord to help us see the model he has given us in Paul, his great desire to encourage, his desire to raise up disciples, his desire to do whatever the situation called for, his yieldness to the Lord which brought great power into his life, and his desire to honor the foundations of the faith once delivered. Let's look to that model and obey Paul's words as he imitates Christ. Pray with me, if you will, and as I pray with the men and women, the musicians and the men who are going to help the Lord's Supper, please come forward. Father, we are just in awe of how your gospel can just transform. Lord, Lord, we, we, we just spent time, we just spent time hearing about the glory of the kingdom spreading. We, we just spent time hearing about the glory displayed through the Apostle Paul. 
And Lord, we've confessed our desire to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Lest we forget, Lord, he is a testimony to the transforming nature of the gospel because just chapters back, he's going to imprison those of the way. And Lord, what your sovereign grace does is rescue. What your sovereign grace does is to give transformation and take a man who is an enemy of the faith and make him a model of the faith. That's what grace can do. That's what the new birth can do. And Father, I just ask that you would just continue to transform those who know Christ more and more into Christ's image by make us encouraging, make us kingdom-minded, make us hunting out people who will both disciple us and whom we could disciple. Father, help us to honor the foundations of Christ's church that we stand upon. And Father, what we ask in response is for your power to rest upon us so we could be part of turning the world upside down. A world, Father, that we confess is desperately in need of being turned upside down. So, Father, hear our prayer and answer us according to the power of your might. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.